This society doesn't teach us how to be participatory, even in our own families. All the institutions that we've come through, by the time you get to be 20, 21, and you're going to get your first job, you are ill-prepared to do anything that's participatory for the most of us. Some of us have been benefited from having, you know, been homeschooled or alternative different exposures to different spiritual practices, but the majority of people are not even, the. I mean, if you think about an athlete, it's not even our muscles that have atrophy. You have to, to atrophy, you actually have to have the muscle present first. Most of us don't even have any, have, have burnt not one calorie towards what we're trying to do right now. So I would say before you even think about going to resource, get clear on what your organization is trying to do and why you're trying to do it. Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck, a podcast about, well, that. Earlier this year, podcasting's favorite co-host, Lauren Ruffin, and I produced Work Shouldn't Suck's Ethical Reopening Summit. The event took place online Tuesday, April 27th, and featured eight sessions, 25 amazing speakers, and covered a whole host of topics related to the ethical reopening of workplaces amid the COVID-19 pandemic. We raced to produce the summit from start to finish in just three weeks as we felt the urgency and stress mounting as workplaces were in the midst of reopening decisions. Several months on, we still feel the content is as necessary as ever, so we decided to release each of the sessions in podcast form. In each of the eight sessions, you'll hear the conversations just as the summit attendees did. As a reminder, in late April 2021, COVID vaccine distribution was just gaining speed, and we had yet to begin hearing about the Delta variant. From that vantage point in time, it very much looked like by fall 2021, things might be settling back into somewhat of a quote-unquote normal routine. As I record this preamble in fall 2021, that's not the case. We're now talking about breakthrough infections, booster shots, schools reopening and closing again, hospital ICUs are packed in states across the U.S., and still how to safely gather indoors as temperatures again begin to drop with the change in seasons. In this session, the panel discusses ways to share power, decision-making, and ownership in organizations. Panelists include Aja Kushwa-Duncan, Hop Hopkins, and Jason Weiner. And podcasting's favorite co-host, Lauren Ruffin, kicks things off and moderates the discussion. So, over to you, Lauren. Oh, a quick note about the audio quality in a few sections of this episode. You'll notice in a place or two that the audio quality and clarity is, let's just say, less than ideal. The source file that came from the Summit platform included these glitches, so while we did our best to clean them up in post-production, we couldn't fix them all. That said, this is a terrific conversation, audio glitches and all. Apologies for the added adventures in audio quality, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, well, let's get started. Hey folks, I'm Lauren Ruffin. I use the, the She series of pronouns. I'm a brown-skinned black woman with short hair. I'm wearing a green hat and a black shirt. And I'm in a room with a white door and a white dresser behind me. And on top of the dresser is, oh, a laptop, which shouldn't be there. A bunch of books, a plant, and Lego village that's coming. My pandemic village is coming together slowly. Really excited to be here to kick off this conversation on alternate power and decision-making models. As many of you know, Fractured Atlas has had a shared non-hierarchical leadership team for about three years now. We've learned a lot about sort of how we're seeding power throughout the organization. We tend to get a lot of questions around how we make decisions. Initially, we were a four-person leadership team. Now we're a two-person leadership team. 
And it's good to be in community with folks who I know are living and thinking about this stuff deeply all the time, similar to the way that we've been doing it at Fractured Atlas. And so with that, I'll, I'll hand it over to my fellow conversationalists here. We've got Jason Weiner, who is an attorney based in Boulder, uh, Colorado, doing a lot of work in the cooperative space around governance, around setting up cooperatives nationally. Hop Hopkins, who's with the Sierra Club as their director of organizational transformation. And Aja Duncan, who we just learned is in rural Marin County in California and works with Change Element, uh, Elemental as a, as a coach and strategist. Welcome. And I'll, I'll turn it over to y'all for some intros. I gave brief bullet points, but of course, want to know what you're thinking about and anything you want to share in, in the space as we sort of kick this conversation off. Jason, I'll pick on you because I know you best. Thanks, Lauren. <laughs> Jason Weiner, he, him, his pronouns, coming to you from Boulder, Colorado on unceded Arapaho uh, territory. I'm on my living room. You might hear the clickety-clack of my dog in the background. It's a fairly bright room behind me, not much to set apart the white walls, tan skin, uh, white man, short haircut, and some scruff coming in on the face with a gray-collared polo shirt. It's wonderful to be with you all. I'm excited to have a conversation about how we show up to work and organizations and acknowledge power structures that don't serve us, how we live into uh, more humane and people-centric and anti-oppressive uh, arrangements that are healthier and can help us to get past the trauma of prior teams and organizations and families in a way that is sustainable. Thanks. And I'll pass it to Aja. Hi, my name is Aja Kushwa Duncan. I'm mixed race Ojibwe. Um, my people come from Michigan, Mackinac, which is a Great Lakes area, Upper Peninsula, Michigan, Canada, waterways, and Scotland and France. And I'm cisgender, queer, woman, person, human. And I live on the stolen ancestral lands of the coastal Miwok people in rural West Marin and work with Change Elemental and really excited for this conversation and appreciate the opportunity. And my dog may bark wildly because he's outside and, you know, there's squirrels out there. So, and I'll turn it over to Hop. Uh, yo, yo, yo. What's up, everybody? My name is Hop Hopkins. I'm the Director of Organization Transformation. As Lawrence said, my pronouns are he, him, his. I'm calling in from occupied and unceded Tongva Chumash territory in Southern California, just outside of, just at the base of what is now known as the San Gabriel Foothills. Been at the Sierra Club for six years in a number of different roles. I am a middle-aged Black man wearing a brown cowboy hat and a, what's that, earth tone plaid shirt. I'm in a corner of my garage with some climbing gear and my printer to my left and to my right. And I'm thinking about how do you take a 128-year-old organization that has an immense amount of power within the U.S. social movement infrastructure and turn it into something that it has not been before, which is a more democratic, participatory place where transparency is, is the rule of the day, decisions are shared across not just in hierarchical relationships, but across expertise, and do this all at the time when the organization is making a shift to a more to try to become a more just and equitable organization analysis in the way it does and addresses its environmental and climate. Hop, that's a great way to kick us off because you just asked the central question, <laughs> which is what we're all thinking about. But Aja, I do want to give you a chance to give an audio description if you 
just for folks who might be listening on a podcast or, or just might need need some help with that. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm not used to that, so I missed it right away. I am a middle-aged woman with brown hair today and braids. Skin ranges from yellow to pink, depending on the day, and then my rest of my body's pretty brown. And I'm wearing a politician-worthy red shirt in front of some art. Some of it's mine, some of it isn't. And yeah, thank you. Amazing. So Hop, you really like cut right to the meat of what we're all trying to figure out. And I'm curious, you said, you know, how do you, how do you turn around the ship that's been around for 128 years? How do you transform the way power happens? How would you answer your own question? Because everyone in this group is at sort of different stages, which is one of the things I love about this organizational transformation work. What are you thinking right now? Because Sierra Club has been really thinking about this and engaging with it for, we say, about a year-ish. Well, when we've really been about the talk is about the last seven to 10 years, and we've really started implementing instructional change over the last three to five years. Just recently, within the last year, it's been about within the last year, we dissolved our previous executive team and went to a, a transitional uh, interim executive steering committee, which I'm on, which is majority BIPOC, majority women. And that's not necessarily based on hierarchical position in the organization. So, so yeah, we've been thinking about it for a minute. I mean, some would say we've been on this journey for about 30 years slowly. And to your question, how does it happen? Well, it happens too fast, too slow, not real enough, you know, if anyone's familiar with the Bridges model, there are different people in different places in terms of the wheel of change and accepting. Some people are in the old space, some people in the neutral zone, some people are in the new beginnings. And it's really hard. I mean, so to be real, we're a 128-year-old organization. We have um, one chapter in every state at least. And California, for example, is a very large state. So it has, I think, 10 to 12 chapters nationally. And our base right now is just under 4 million people. And when you think about a base of 4 million people and an active body of people you're engaging with on a day-to-day or weekly basis, that's, that 4 million people represents a, a, a body of people that's larger than 22 of our states in the union. So it's a pretty significant infrastructure that you're trying to navigate with a number of different forms of organization. We have groups, then the groups have Sorry, we have chapters in the chapters. We have groups and then that are geographically based within the state. If it's a large state with dispersed populations. And then we have networks that are national that are composed of members from some of those states, some of those groups to then work on things. And so it's a very um, multi-layered organizational infrastructure. And there are different people at different places inside the organization. Now, most people would say we definitely want to change. That's not the problem. It's the level of change and the type of change that you that begins to rub people raw, that starts to chaps people's hides. And when, for me, in this last year, I do think, Lauren, we've gotten much more clear on exactly what type of change we're doing. I think the question of why are we trying to become an anti-racist organization? Why is that essential to the way in which we solve climate change? And there's an article that I wrote called um, Racism is Killing the Planet, which I was asked to write uh, by our deputy executive director, my boss in, 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 in the hopes of kind of articulating why it's necessary for the organization to take on an anti-racist intersectional analysis, because that was the disconnect that some of our folks were making. So if you ask me to make change across the, you know, a board to get them aligned, senior leadership, our senior leaders, our directors, it's a very complex, multi-layered structure. And depending on who you're asking. I just dropped the link to the article in the chat. Um, I read that right after we first met a, a couple of months back up, and it's it's a really great article that makes that connection people often have hard time with, which is 
how racism, how oppression sort of floods through all of our work and how what we're really trying to do inside of our organization is recognize these people that we work with are also being impacted by oppression and sort of beginning to tease out the levers that we can pull as leaders to, to make the way that we work a little bit more humane. I'm going to go to you now, Aja, because I know Change Elemental, I won't say it was necessarily birth, but has a long history of working in a non-traditional way as an organization with shared leadership and being non-hierarchical. So I would love to sort of get a sense of, of where y'all feel like you are on your journey, because it's, this is a way that you've worked for quite some time. Yeah, thank you. We also rebranded. So it's a true statement to say a Change Elemental has been working this way, but we were previously known as the Management Assistance Group and have been around for 45 years. And I wouldn't say that necessarily that's the way we've always been working. The we changing over time, of course, <laughs> the actors change. Yeah, we started with a co-director model, which, you know, five a little over five years ago, which now I know is sort of like almost commonplace. But at the time, there was a lot of push you know, both from our governance team. And then a bunch of people were like, well, how do you do that after we did it? And, you know, it certainly enabled us to share power in different ways and, you know, draw on different people's strengths, but it wasn't any way of fully grappling with, you know, white supremacy and hierarchy and power and race and the organization. And it also didn't ease the, you know, sort of endless burden of ED burnout, even if there was, you know, it was two EDs burning out, <laughs> basically, which was, it, what, what was great about it is, you know, they hit a wall and that really pushed us to reimagine what we could do in ways that enabled us to really live more deeply into how our own, like the qualities of our own internal capacities manifest and how we show up and all of that kind of stuff. So we started a journey about I think it was a year and a half ago to like reimagine what it might look like. And we really wanted to draw on the strengths and powers of the, not power in that way, but like the strengths and abilities and capacities of folks in the team. So we went from a co-director model to sort of a five person, what we called a chrysalis stage and just started having people hold more responsibility and influence in decision-making in different aspects of mission sustainability, human sustainability, and fiscal sustainability. And then we moved into the next iteration, which we called the hub. And that became, I'm trying to remember, I was just in a meeting. I think it's a six-person team with, with the co-directors trying to increasingly step out and see, you know, like what we could sort of grapple with. And, and now we're on what will be the third iteration of thinking about what's, well, it's so interesting, Hop, to come after you because we're such a TD organization that our constraints are much more around like the governance team, which is wildly supportive and we have an amazing governance team, but like just, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex constraints and expectations, which you do hit against every time you push, you're going to hit another one. But we're, yeah, we're really small. So we don't have like the amount of stakeholder potential constraints, you know, and feedback and influence that I'm, I'm sure you're all grappling with. But now we're moving into another iteration and we're just starting to imagine what it will look like. I'll say, you know, some of our learnings, we range between 10 to 13 people, is if you've got almost half of your organization in a shared leadership model, and then we created structures for actually everyone in the organization to be in what we call different paths that are around functional aspects, because we're almost too small to have certain functions actually at all, is that it's like it's a real big draw on the energy and attention of the organization. And so while we're learning tons of things and sharing them with you know our partners and and the field, we also are like in the dance of like, what's too much so that, you know, we can't actually do the work that we're, you know, her vision and mission are actually about. So I think that that's probably always attention. And I know other small organizations 
that have been doing a lot of um, experimentation around shared leadership are sort of hitting up against those things as well. Jason, you're up. Well, it's interesting. We've gone down this progression of scale, and Aja, I will say we're probably even smaller. Um, we're a team, a core team of eight individuals, seven are attorneys, seven uh, women, and one man, which is an interesting dynamic in a law firm. It's highly unusual, but we wrestle with, I personally wrestle with notions of power and leadership as a white cis male in an organization that purports to kind of practice in an unconventional way with unconventional types of clients and to dismantle systems of white supremacy in as many kind of places as they show up in our work. And so what that looks like, we have, I think, a fairly robust stakeholder approach. We have on any given year over 150 individual clients. We've been around for seven years and we were one of the first public benefit corporation, B Corp certified entities. We went through both the certification and the public benefit corp thing at a time when kind of brand stamping was really in vogue. And I always knew that was really just the starting line for what it meant to actually practice with authenticity and a dedication to uh, anti-racism, anti-oppression. And uh, we've cultivated a clientele that in many ways carries out those values into the world at a scale that's much larger than we ourselves can impact. And so I think in some ways we're kind of part of this value chain. And yet we've pushed ourselves to invest more deeply in the work and the way that we do it. And so we have a, you know, despite this being the only kind of quote unquote owner of the firm, but we've operated with open book management, 99% open book management. I come from an organization that had 100% transparency down to individual salaries, comp, and everything else. And uh, I decided that there was a degree of discomfort in that that, uh, that caused me to ratchet that back just one degree. So we're 99% transparent. I do dashboard reports every week to our team. We produce annual public benefit reports with metrics that go far beyond what is required or even contemplated by the B-Impact assessment. We just put out our last 2020 B-Impact assessment or B-Impact report. We've done about five of them now, and it's interesting to watch the trends, but we're self-managed entirely. So I've made it very clear that I am neither comfortable nor desirous of the decision-making power within the organization. So even for fairly young attorneys, and when I introduce myself, I talked about trauma. A lot of folks come to even our small workplace with a lot of trauma and it shows up and we kind of tackle it transparently and hopefully in an environment of security and safety. It shows up in the way we talk about comp. It shows up in the way that we talk about budgeting. It shows up in the way that people talk about their conditions and needs for work as well, their their desire and need for autonomy and professional development and evaluations. And we try to make it as multilateral and as inclusive as possible, recognizing that we all show up with with work trauma. And it's been interesting and challenging because the unacknowledged trauma is one of the most pernicious, insidious forms of oppression that we bring around in the world. And so it's such a relief when team members show up and either after or during a conversation acknowledge the trauma that they just brought to the interaction. And it gives me the safety to know that I haven't necessary that we can have a now more kind of enlightened and hopefully liberated discussion about what we want versus what needs to occur. And 
you know, there's a lot of monikers for what we do, teal lawyering or whatever, whatever. But really, to me, this is I created the firm to be kind of an enlivened, liberated place for me to just be who I am and practice the way I want. And I discovered over the last couple of years that it's turned out to be a fairly inviting and safe place for others to show up to work too and do work that far exceeds any possible expectation I had for excellence and dedication. And now we grapple with how do we, so I don't worry about how do we keep people motivated? I worry, how do we keep people from burning themselves out, running themselves into the ground? So we're one of those organizations, you know, we're small. I don't like to police anything. So unlimited PTO. Now, the irony is people don't use it. I have to encourage and, and, and remind people about self-care, which is both ironic and I think a bit paternalistic, the white man reminding people to take care of themselves. But I make it a point to invite, when is your next vacation day scheduled? You're getting through something big now. Just know not to jump into the next big thing. I have to actively ratchet back people's kind of bandwidth reports to make sure that they're not overextending. So all this is to say that this is part of the journey that you know we've embraced and we take on and we try to showcase that and practice it with our clients as well. For that, Jason, I can see some folks on my team who we had conversations during the interview process about work trauma. They're they're telling on me in the chat. But I think you know that that work trauma comes up when we have organizations where leaders wield power in a way that's really unhealthy. And it is interesting, in particular, when I'm managing and working with younger folks who's their, you know, entry-level employees, their first experience with our workforce is typically pretty horrific. And so we tend to get folks at Fractured Atlas and at Crux who are maybe in their second job or, you know, second or third job relatively young and helping them have transparent conversations about power and encouraging them to sort of step into their power, I think is probably one of the most freeing aspects of about thinking about how power is distributed throughout your organization. Jason, I know that you're you're doing a lot of work with cooperatives. I'd love for you to really quickly dispel some myths about democratic governance and decision-making in particular. We continue at Fractiles to get a lot of questions about how we make decisions. I, I also saw some question in the chat about decision-making, so maybe we could spend some time there as a group collectively. But Jason, you can get started because I know you have lots of thoughts on cooperatives and decision-making. Sure. There's one follow-up I wanted to make, which is, you know, unfortunately, when it comes to work trauma, I think particularly in the U.S. and probably throughout Western world, I think the only kind of example we have of folks who show up with a bit of a kind of open-minded or liberated notion of work are entrepreneurs. And the, the entrepreneurs in some ways have been, you know, we've developed this cultish kind of iconic lionized version of what the Western entrepreneur is like. You know, they show up, they overwork, they read, and they're these overaccomplished, often white men who come from privilege and means to fulfill a vision and a, and a dream. And I think in so many ways, when we look to recruit people who are relatively self-aware and show up having thought of their work trauma, that's the only kind of example we have. We don't have folks who are conditioned out of traditional employment-based work trauma. That may be my segue to cooperatives. Cooperatives are no different. You know, the cooperative is perhaps a more democratic and potentially more humane way to organize people, but it's not intrinsically more humane, and it's certainly not intrinsically more functional. In many ways, it's so well-practiced to be dysfunctional. And the examples we have are you know, replete throughout the food grocery co-op sector. And even in the worker co-op sector, we're still 
to some degree, we haven't fully deprogrammed and we haven't actually fully lived out the liberated notion of broad-based shared ownership. I sometimes maybe jokingly or coyly refer to the cooperative as the apple of business models. It should be intuitive and it should be practiced from a from a kind of an intuitive place versus a programmed way of organizing. So, you know, a lot of cooperatives will still organize themselves in a fairly traditional format. The board of directors views its central role to be somewhat adversarial with management and hold them accountable or be captured by management and buffer them against the members. We don't have a really strong example or many strong examples of dynamic governance that involves proactively engaging broad-based members as owners and also stakeholders in a way that engages them and and leans into the stickiness of the relationship that we've cultivated. I think Crux and a few other examples are leading the kind of the breakout of what the mold ought to be. But you know, we have to begin to pair some of the new thinking around self-management or kind of non-hierarchical team orientation with the business model of shared ownership so that we can fully express what ownership really is. Because ownership in America really is about power, it's about wealth, and it's about liquidity. So it's about that big golden rainbow payday. It's really not about sustainability and durability and intergenerational planning. And that's what the cooperative model is built about. And I'll give one final anecdote. We had a mini training moment on our team. We got a a client that's been a co-op for 75 years. And they originally in the 30s and 40s were issuing paper membership certificates. And one of the heirs to one of the members came forward to the co-op and said, this $50 share sure has got to be worth a lot of money today. I'm here, ready to cash it in. You know, what do you owe me? Five, ten, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars? And the board said, no, it's still worth fifty dollars. And you know, they hired a lawyer, they thought this can't be right. And over the course of now probably three or four generations, that person had lost track of what their family members' me- membership in the cult was really all about. But it harkens through several generations of technology. And with blockchain and smart technology, we can do so much better to tell the story about what participatory management is, what co-ownership is in a cooperative, and what that means in terms of the access I have to policy setting and engagement. That's really profound, Jason. Hop, you're in a relatively new you know, shared leadership situation. Have you all had any disagreements yet? And how did you all really come to a decision? You got jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Always. Uh, that's why I like kicking it with you. You got jokes. Oh, I was telling you, I just came out of a budget, just came out of the ISC meeting, the this interim steering committee. So it was like, you know, that whole the whole space is contentious without even having to put anything on the agenda. I mean, you know, I always think about that James Baldwin quote, precisely at the point when you begin to develop a conscious, you find yourself at war with society, right? And it's that way. I mean, many of the things we're talking about, and Aja, I really want to appreciate you for, for naming it you know, before I did, was we're, in a, we're an industrial, the nonprofit industrial complex. It's a system within a system within a system of oppression that's not meant for liberation. So there's already some bookends to what we're gonna, what's possible given the system that we're trying to operate in. And that is the first challenge in going into an organizational transformation process. Well, I mean, most of us who work in, in a nonprofit really are neoliberal spaces, right? We need to understand that the role that nonprofits play is in really protecting 
the money and wealth of the one percenters who happen to be a little bit progressive or want to put their money in a system where they could shelter. I mean, that's just the reality. And so I'm not saying that the level of change we're going to be able to do, we should just ground ourselves the foundations of what the ecosystem we're operating in. So, that, so that's one thing. Because you have other people thinking that we're going to be in some, you know, hyper-democratic process that's going to be, you know, horizontal and flat. Now we're going to sociocracy. And, you know, so there's different visions and ideas about what you mean when you're in there. And you just got to kind of lay it out for people. And the first body, like us, from that from that team to this, I have to tell people, it's like, we're not the magic sauce. We're the cleanup crew. Let's just be real. Pardon my, you know, Ebonics. We're going to clean up all the stuff that this previous body wasn't able to do. It's like being an organizer. When you are an organizer, you go knock on your first door in the neighborhood. They ain't trying to hear what you got to say. They going to tell you all the things that was promised that you didn't have nothing to do with probably, but you're going to get all the shit for it. So on your fourth or fifth visit to that, you should just be prepared. On your fourth or fifth visit to the house is the time you're going to be able to talk about what you want to talk about. Up until then, you're going to get an earful, probably get both ears gnawed off by all the stuff that went wrong and all the other people who showed up. And so I'm trying to people, look, let's just be real. We're the cleanup crew. We're going to try to set stuff right in this period. There's a limited amount of, of time. We're here because we have a, we have probably an overabundance of political capital that we're going to expend a lot of in order to move from this very highly visibly dysfunctional place to something that's, that's the hope and promise of something different. And so if you're doing this, you should be thinking about it as an iterative process. And you need to be thinking about it as a multi-tiered. You're going to need to go into many different, you should be ready to experiment and fail, which nonprofits and white supremacy culture are neither set up for to tolerate or want to do, which is change and experiment and fail. And then we do a pretty poor job of doing from the experiments that we are allowed to do. So I've just tried to tell people, we're not the magic sauce. We're the cleanup crew. We're going to do some things, but that we're not going to be the body that's going to bring and deliver the organizational transformation at the big level. We're going to level set, try to get people prepared for a larger level of transformation, and then set the stage for the next group that comes through behind us. And Aja, what are y'all learning and passing around as you're continuing to make decisions at Change Elemental? Yeah, well, and I just want to riff on what you named off because one of the experiments that when when Alyssa Sloan Perry and Susan Misora were co-directors was to do the work that they thought was most important with the organizations and leaders and networks that were the most important in terms of prefiguring a, a different future, one of liberation and love. They were like, if it turns out it's not financially viable, you know, as a kind of fee for service with some um, national support organization, then like, what's the point? We're just part of the system. We're just, you know, perpetuating it. So we we are often in that question and the, the parameters of that question shifts, you know, depending on sort of where we are financially, external circumstances, all of that. But we're always in that question. Like if we can't be doing the work that we think matters, then we shouldn't be here. And I also didn't name, in the same way I failed to describe myself, there's a theme here that the organization was originally, or not originally, but when we had our co-director model, you know, two queer women of color, one black, one Southeast Asian, and now is two-thirds BIPOC, third queer. So number of identities have been really critical, and we're also predominantly cisgender female. And one of the things that 
we focus the most on, and, and I think that this is sort of embedded in everything that's been named as relationships, so building trust, getting really clear about what our values look like in practice. Because you can say like equity is our value, but like, what does that actually mean? Because people hold very different sort of mental models or pictures of what that is. And then, then what's the shared practices that are going to support us? And all of that being named and us all like nodding our heads, we I just came out of a meeting that was very tense where we were like, I'm feeling some kind of way about what you're saying. And like, you're telling me this is the decision-making criteria. And yet I thought we were in a shared leadership situation. So we like, we get into it. And what enabled us to get into it, because I think a lot of us as facilitators and coaches tend to be more on the like support side, was actually just being in deep relationship and spending a heck of a lot of time with each other and talking about what does shared leadership mean and what does equity mean and what does it mean to, you know, like draw on ancestral wisdom and like, you know, what does it mean to like be really clear about all the all the SHIT I have about money because of my intergenerational stuff, my own like childhoods. So we're often trying to unpack that stuff. So at least we can know like, this is mine and this is the organization's, which is an aggregate of all of ours. And, you know, just have like some space to talk about and grapple with that stuff. And I don't even know if I answered your question. That's where we needed to be. Um, <laughs> so don't worry about it at all. I want to hop to a question we have in the chat here from Bajay. How can a traditional nonprofit organization adopt alternate power and decision-making models? Is this possible? I know that the Sustainable Economies Law Center has done a lot around democratic governance. Are there other resources that we can sort of point to folks who are in the chat? I think pretty much everyone in this room is here because they're thinking about this. Maybe we can get down to some nuts and bolts resources of things that have been helpful as, as y'all are creating these organizations or beginning to lean into this. That's one, the Sustainable Law Center. That's a good one that's here in Southern California. So that's a great resource. I mean, I think, you know, I'm just going to say this. I'm going to do resources, but I feel like I come up against this all the time doing equity, justice, and inclusion work or intersectional work in spaces where that's not been the norm. And I'm not saying this is where the question is coming from, but it, it's, it does remind me of this, is that there is no silver bullet, that people are looking for the one or two or three things that we can get, and it's not that easy. And I can give you a list of resources, but if the organization does not have the intestinal fortitude or is not oriented to be in this space, it doesn't matter what I give you. If you're not ready for it, you're not ready for it. And I would say most organizations aren't ready to go to a third party. I don't want to bust up any consultants, but we spend way too much money on outside work because we're not ready there. And I think the first thing I was saying is like, you got to define the problem you're trying to solve for. And first of all, you try to define the problem you're trying to solve for, you're going to find out that you're not all trying to solve the same question, the same problem. And that's the big thing. And I would suggest that organizations get trying to clear on what are we trying to pivot from to? What is it about our culture that we actually want to, that we've actually examined that is not healthy for us, that's preventing us from moving to this new direction? So there's a bunch of pre-work that actually has to happen before I think you even get to trying to get to a consultant or resources. You just need to be clear because many of the concepts and things you're going to be introduced to, most folks have had, I mean, look, this society doesn't teach us how to be participatory, even in our own families. All the institutions that we've come through by the time you get to be 2021 20, and you're going to get your first job, you are ill-prepared to do anything that's participatory for the most of us. Some of us have been benefited from having, you know, been homeschooled or alternative different exposures to different spiritual practices, but the majority of people are not even, the. I mean, if you think about an athlete, it's not even our muscles that atrophy. You have to, to atrophy, you actually have to have the muscle present first. 
most of us have burnt not one calorie towards what we're trying to do right now. So I would say before you even think about going to resource, get clear on what your organization is trying to do and why you're trying to do it. Right. And it's actually got to be, I mean, honest, I'm just going to tell you this. If it's not situated in actually dismantling systemic oppression from the start, that's, I mean, even if we could just get there, we wouldn't, we could still have hierarchies and still be doing better work. I mean, goddamn. I mean, that's the problem. Is this just not recognizing that we're all out in the world and we're trying to just band-aid and tweak around the edges of, of justice? And so I would say there's a bunch of pre-work that has to happen to do that. And just some of these questions that I'm identifying would be helpful. And then one is like having conversations like this. What are the leadership and cultural practices and pivots we want to shift from to? Get the idea of what's the difference between learning just some basic stuff. What's the difference between governance and management? Right? getting a clear idea about power and how it operates within our organization, within the society, and how we actually want to relate to power in our new structure, right? And also this thing with what Jason brought up was trauma. How do we prove, how is this place not psychologically safety for those who don't identify with the mainstream? And how is it that our decision-making processes and models now enforce and increase that level of psychological like of like psychological safety. So there's some already things I think that we ought to do as an organization that take a back seat to resources first. It's just kind of getting and building a vocabulary and understanding about actually how our organizations are actually structured and function now, both consciously and unconsciously, to perpetuate systemic oppression within these nonprofit structures. And then once you've done that, I'll let Jason and, and Aja give you some and I spend so much time because you bring in a consultant and they're like, holy hell, what kind of mess did I get into? And they're just trying to level up people to like square one. And they're happy to get paid, but they're not living in their best way to help you move forward. And so I would say there's some shit that you just got to figure out ahead of time before you call a consultant. And if a consultant doesn't ask some of these questions, they're not worth a damn. That's so true. We've got four minutes left. There's one more question in the chat that came in earlier. I've been having many discussions recently with others from my team who feel as though decisions made by management, especially as it relates to performance assessment and promotions, are opaque. I'm interested in especially how an art org can better approach decision-making in general so that it feels transparent and fair to those affected. Jason, I know you talked about open book management and some transparency in your organization. How are y'all handling performance assessment promotions? Because I know you're doing more than just billable hours as a firm. Yeah. This, this just came up, actually. So we have only had, I mean, we've only had kind of full-time associates on our team for about three years, three out of seven. So, and in many ways, as is usually the case, you know, whenever you kind of plan for a major change in your organization, the things that you don't plan for are the things that come up. And so that really speaks, Hop, to your point about don't bring in the consultant to kind of plan for a big change. You have to be prepared for the adaptation that's involved. So one, we we try to bring a sense of mindfulness to all of these conversations and a sense of humility. We know, the one thing I know for sure, the one thing I'm really confident about is that neither I nor any individual on the team will have all the answers for the questions that come up. So I go in thinking, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you that I'm giving this my best shot and I remain open and available and adaptive to the feedback that I need to, that we need to adapt this tool. So first thing is we de- we co-developed an assessment and evaluation matrix. And one thing that's 
kind of in my core is to know that whatever you measure is is a reflection of what matters. It's the same thing at, with nonprofits. Whatever you budget for, that's what matters. If it's not in your budget, if it's not in your evaluation, it can't matter that much. And it's also not fair to kind of informally measure the thing that's not there. So our matrix has a little bit on technical skill. It has a lot more on experience and skill development. So we actually developed this matrix and we have the person go through a self-evaluation and then we do an evaluation with at least one senior person. There's no supervisors or, or managers. It's a senior attorney only to provide some sort of a different perspective on training and experience. But we rank each component based on how important is it to the organization? How interested is the person being evaluated in that skill or piece of development? And then what is their expected level of proficiency? And then how do they rate against that? It's silly to just rate performance without knowing what the baseline is. So, you know, we say for a fairly junior attorney, maybe they're only expected to be one out of five in terms of their expected proficiency. And I can tell them, well, you're overperforming. You're at a three already. So we've actually for 25 components of evaluation. And by the way, values alignment and adherence to our norms are in that matrix. How you live out these values, how you support leadership within the team, how you exercise leadership outwardly. And again, these are all components. And so we measure that. And we just did this with one of our associates. And you know, on top of going through that exercise, our associates selected who would review her performance. So I asked her, I said, you know, I'll do it. You'll do it. Who else would you like to review you? And we brought in somebody who she selected to provide that feedback. And it was a conversation starter. And what we looked for was misalignment in the tool. And it turns out that, again, this reflected trauma. She vastly underassessed her performance in areas where I thought she was just crushing it based not only on expected levels of proficiency, but objective levels of proficiency. So we were able to talk about that. We were able to talk about what that meant in terms of professional development, where to devote resources. And then on top of that, we have a very open kind of dialogue around compensation. So while individual comp is not public, I try to maintain a sense of uniformity in terms of the rationale and the approach. We've got folks all over the country, and so that makes it a little bit challenging. But everyone has access to all the numbers of the firm every week. Everyone knows what we're working with in terms of resources. And so I've been fortunate more than I think I've been, well, intentional unfortunate. I have preempted every associate for a salary adjustment before they've asked. I've said, you've been here a year, you haven't asked yet. I want to invite you to make a recommendation and a proposal. And I just prompted this associate for a review and it was provisional. We agreed, but I was like, I think, I think we got it wrong. I think we're too far under. So let's do an evaluation and then let's readjust it. And that's just conscientiousness more than I think it's really anything else. But I'll stop there. Well, that's a good, hopeful note to end on. It's clear that this is like really meaty and we could have spent another hour on this. But I want to be respectful of everyone's time. Hop, Jason, Aja, thank you so much for, for showing up for us today. And I hope we can continue the conversation. We'll be back, I think, on the main stage at the hour mark, wherever you are. Hopefully I'll see the three of y'all, y'all in the chat. Find more about the Ethical Reopening Summit, including speaker bios and session recaps at workshouldnsuck.co backslash ethical hyphen reopening hyphen summit hyphen 2021. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, 
please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or a five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. Until next time, thanks for listening.